listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Today, we're talking about the international Uber and Lyft strike. Rideshare drivers around the world turned off the app and turned up the noise at Uber's various international headquarters as the company went public. Drivers around the world are asking for their share of the value they create, which, you know, is all of it. We spoke to drivers and organizers in New York, Los Angeles, and the UK. But first, the news. To start off this week, I wanted to spend a little time remembering Dan Clausen, a friend of the show who passed away this week. Dan was a labor scholar and committed unionist whose work in the Massachusetts Teachers Association helped change that union's position and perspective, and he played a key role in advising and helping to form the reform movement of teachers that has borne fruit in such spectacular ways in recent years. He was a professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, the former national chair of scholars, artists, and writers for social justice, which worked to connect intellectuals in the labor movement. He was recently serving as a member of the Massachusetts Teachers Association Executive Committee and as co-chair of its Educational Policy and Practice Committee. He was the author of several books, including Unequal Time, Gender, Class, and Family in Employment Schedules, the Next Upsurge, Labor in the New Social Movements, Families at Work, Expanding the Bounds, Dollars and Votes, How Business Campaign Contributions Subvert Democracy, Money Talks, Corporate PACs and Political Influence, and Bureaucracy in the Labor Process, the Transformation of U.S. Industry. I met Dan when he was part of the formation of the EDU caucus within the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and he introduced me to Barbara Madaloni, who you have now heard on this show multiple times, and who went on to her shocking win to become MTA president. What I appreciated about him was that he took seriously his role as a union member to fight alongside all the educators in the union for all the educators in Massachusetts, and by extension, the entire country. He applied his skill as a researcher to that work, and that, like everyone else who knew him, I felt welcomed everywhere that he invited me. Most recently, that was to contribute a chapter to a book he was co-editing on labor in the time of Trump, which will be out soon from Cornell University Press. I will remember him as someone who valued everyone's contributions, knowing that the labor movement needs us all to grow, to get stronger, and to win. He never backed down from a fight, and everyone who knew him trusted him to have their back. Dan's daughter, Laura, is a labor reporter at Daily Coast and has been a guest and guest host on this show and a friend of it from the very start. The family has suggested that if anyone is interested, donations in Dan's name can be made to Labor Notes. Farm workers in New York may be on the cusp of winning labor rights that have been denied to them for generations by Washington. The country's bedrock labor laws, primarily the Fair Labor Standards Act, deliberately left domestic workers and farm workers excluded from the New Deal's standards for workers back in the 1930s. These included overtime, collective bargaining rights, and other wage and hour laws. New York labor law has mirrored these exemptions, and the main reason for these gaps in the federal and state level has always been racial discrimination. Originally, it was aimed at excluding black workers, and the law now primarily excludes migrant workers of color, largely from Mexico and other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. Now, about 80 harvests later, 
Albany is considering a bill to close the gap and give farm workers access to overtime pay, protection from occupational injury, and more importantly, the right to organize and collectively bargain. The law comes about a decade after the state passed another breakthrough law that closed critical loopholes in federal laws, the Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights, and that provided the first concrete set of labor and civil rights protections for the household workers, largely uh, women and immigrants of color. I talked to Jose Chapa of Justice for Farm Workers, a New York-based advocacy group, on what the legislation would mean for workers across the state and their ongoing struggle for fair wages and recognition. So actually, this campaign is about 20 years old. So actually, the first time this bill was introduced first into the New York State Senate and the New York State Assembly was 20 years ago. So it's it's something that has been reintroduced year in, year in, and year in, but nothing has passed simply because of the uh, politics of New York State and the Republican majority that has existed within the New York State Senate for most of that time. This bill, the Farm Worker Fair Labor Practices Act, uh, would enact fair and basic labor protections that have been uh, denied to farm workers since the National Labor Board passed and the New Deal passed back in the 1930s. Back then, uh, farm workers were excluded from all these basic rights and protections every other worker is entitled to, simply because at that time, most farm workers were black. And in order to make a deal with those racist uh, congressmen and women, well, at that time, there weren't any women really there, they decided to exclude farm workers from having the right to overtime pay, having a right to have a day of rest every week, and also they are not allowed to organize and collectively bargain. So those are the three main points of the Farm Worker Fair Labor Practices Act that uh, passed in New York State this year would give farm workers across the state those rights, among others. Is this legislation similar to legislation that has been passed in any other state? I understand that California does have some extra protections for farm workers, but I don't know if this bill is stronger or weaker than that. California first uh, passed labor protections for farm workers back in the 70s uh, in the era of Cesar Chavez and the Lotus Huerta, and farm workers in that state have been able to collectively bargain, but overtime pay was not extended to that workforce up until 2016. Uh, in 2016, California passed legislation that would phase in overtime pay starting um, this year, actually, at 60 hours and eventually making it down to 40 hours a week by 2022. If the bill passes as it is right now, as it's written, then it would essentially make New York probably one of the best states uh, to have laws like this in place for farm workers in the country. And right now, unless the individual state has taken this extra step of adding protections, they basically default to the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? And so like the federal status quo is basically that farm workers are excluded from all these rights. Exactly. Uh, last, no, actually, earlier this year, legislation was introduced in Washington uh, by Senator Kamala Harris and Congressman Grijalda. But that legislation exclusively revolves around the overtime pay, and it looks a lot like what California passed back in 2016. Okay, so they would need to go through the step of unionizing before they could collectively bargain. Essentially, if they want to unionize, that's what they would have to do. At this point, 
farm workers are not even allowed to organize or even be suspected of organizing because they could be fired. And so is the case for Christina Hernandez, who's a farm work, who, who was a farm worker in upstate New York, and he's actually sued the state of New York for the right for farm workers to uh, collectively bargain. And that case is currently being uh, still taken by the Court of Appeals. I, I imagine, you know, while this would offer protections, it would not ultimately resolve the legal issues surrounding undocumented farm laborers. Um, is that a constituency that you're um, concerned about in terms of even with these protections, they still would remain unprotected in many ways? Well, that is true. But even without these protections, if, these, if this continues, then, you know, there, there's still a vulnerability that has existed and will exist if this piece of legislation doesn't get passed. However, Passing this piece of legislation would ensure that some of that vulnerability would be hopefully dismantled by by a law such as this that would provide a law and a protection for workers that that haven't been able to be protected under the law. Even if this legislation passes, I think the state would need to undertake a pretty systematic effort to make sure that both employers and workers know their rights, right? Oh, definitely. There will definitely have to be an education phase that would have to be hopefully implemented with hopefully the the help of the state, because if this is going to be enforced, people need to be aware of what their rights are. Teachers across the U.S. are continuing to organize and raise hell. Last week, teachers in South Carolina and North Carolina rallied at their state capitals, wearing red and demanding higher pay and better conditions. And this Wednesday, Oregon teachers were the latest to walk out and head to the state capitol, closing some 25 school districts across the state with their action. The walkout came just after Republicans in the state Senate failed to show up for a vote on a $1 billion education tax, bringing the chamber to a halt. All 12 Republicans were missing Tuesday, denying the Senate enough members to move forward with a vote. Sounds familiar, although it was the Democrats who skipped down in Wisconsin in 2011. Like teachers in Los Angeles, class sizes in Oregon are a huge issue, and teachers demanded funding in order to bring those sizes down. They're also calling for more counselors, better equipment, and nurses and librarians. Currently, Oregon has less than one librarian per district and one nurse for every 5,481 students. They're also calling for a restoration of art, music, and physical education programs. The Portland Association of Teachers nearly struck in 2014, one of a wave of teachers unions that stepped up militancy after the 2012 Chicago strike and won gains for their schools by sticking to a credible strike threat. Those stories are too often missed in today's news cycle, which attributes all teacher militancy to West Virginia in 2018. While the West Virginia teachers undeniably kicked off this latest wave and the new tendency of teachers to take their day off work to descend on the state capitol demanding legislators act, it's also worth looking at the demands that the largest school district in Oregon made just a few years ago. At that time, the union had released a report similar to the one in Chicago, the schools Portland students deserve, making many of these calls now being echoed statewide this week. The Portland teachers also called for recruiting more teachers of color, pushed back on standardized testing, and fought school closures that crowded their classrooms further. Students had backed the Portland teachers on their fight as well. In Medford, Oregon, at the same time as Portland's near near strike in 2014, educators also struck for 16 days and won gains on pay, benefits, and working time. The teachers have been organizing and making gains there for years, and in Oregon, at least, the governor says she's with them. Not so much in South Carolina. 
Oh, and this week was Teacher Appreciation Week. So hello, teachers. We here at Belabored appreciate you and all your unsung organizing, as well as your work in the classroom. And you can always tell your stories to us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. So after more than two years of federal tax and labor protections, rollbacks on union rights, and other reactionary policies under Trump, Democratic lawmakers are hoping to not only fix the damage, but proactively campaign for a major expansion of the right to collective action at workplaces. The Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or PRO, would make it easier to hold bosses to account in court by banning employers from imposing forced arbitration agreements that automatically preempt class action lawsuits. And it would also restrict the hiring of substitute workers during strikes and streamline the collective bargaining process following unionization. It would also tackle one of the key weapons that corporate lobbyists have used to bust unions on the state level, the right-to-work legislation that is now in place in about half of states. Essentially, the PRO Act would counter these laws by barring workers covered by a union contract from opting out of union membership and the fair share fees that are typically owed in place of dues. The bill would also significantly expand the scope of workers' strike power. They could engage in short-term intermittent strikes with rolling work stoppages across a period of time, or they could engage in solidarity strikes in which workers at other workplaces unite in solidarity and take action in coordination with strikers under a particular employer. These proposals will, of course, be pretty much done on arrival in the Republican-controlled Senate. But the PRO Act, which was just recently introduced with co-sponsorship from the Democratic frontrunners, including Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth Warren, would set an important placeholder for after 2020. Notably, the language affirms that, quote, workers must be free to act in solidarity with workers in other workplaces in order to improve labor standards and achieve other lawful ends for mutual aid or protection. Of course, it would be a major challenge to get employers to respect these expanded rights, but simply raising this idea and codifying the language in Washington is a pretty significant paradigm shift in the way union rights are discussed in the Beltway not as a nuisance or a threat to corporate prosperity, but as an actual constitutional entitlement for workers. And of course, even if this dies in Congress, it does draw a key battle line as progressives push to win over working class voters, not just in swing districts, but in workplaces nationwide. On Wednesday in cities across the country and around the world, rideshare drivers went on strike and they shut it down. That is, they shut down their apps in a coordinated, unprecedented effort to show their quasi-employers, that is, the apps that control their jobs, that they were sick and tired of poverty wages, of erratic schedules, and of being unfairly treated under an opaque rule system that no one particularly understands because it's all run by an algorithm. We talked to some of the workers at the rally in New York and in Los Angeles and also in England. This is Inder Parmar. He is a veteran Uber driver in New York, and I talked to him the night before the strike. I've been driving taxi since 2006. And uh, in 2013, I joined Uber. And when I joined Uber, I was making average about $30, $32 an hour. Today, my average has fallen down to $10 an hour. In $32 an hour, I was, it used to pay for my car, it used to pay for my gasoline, my tolls, my food, and I used to take some money home. Right now, with Uber's income, I can't support anything. 
the income has dropped so drastically. It has dropped by two. Basically, I lost my two-third income. I was the very lucky driver. I found one executive of the company. She hired me. I work about 40 hours a week with her, and I work another 30 to 40 hours with the Uber. But uh, right now, in my thinking, it's an exploitation, and it's a legalized slavery where they don't even have to feed us, but they have us there 24 hours, seven days. And um, uh, we need, as a 3 million drivers, I think the government got to wake up. The elected leaders will have to wake up one day soon before hundreds of drivers commit suicide. I, as I said, I'm a very lucky driver. All my three kids are out of college. My son did MBA in finance. He works for TD Bank. My daughter did MBA in finance and marketing. She's working for one very big auto part company. And my son is a mechanical engineer. He designed microchips. Okay, all three kids are willing to help me. They do help me financially too. Okay, if I didn't have those financial help and those kids were in school, I would have been in a financial disaster. And my wife has a very good job. She works for a bank. I got my health insurance from the bank. And Uber is saying they're going to give us the perks. Okay, they're going to give me four-year tuition. Whose tuition they're going to pay? My family has nobody to go to school. They, give, they said they're going to give me three cents a gallon. I use 10, cents, 10 gallons a day because I drive big SUV. Those Toyota Camry people, they use three to four gallons a day. What difference does a 12 cents in a whole day makes? Or for me, 10 gallons, three cents a gallon, does 30 cents a day makes a difference? I want to know from Uber what they're going to do with my paycheck. Show me on my paycheck. Don't tell me I'm going to get three cents a gallon discount if I go to those gas stations where they want me to go. A lot of times those gas stations are already 10 cents higher than the other people. Or they are 10 cents higher on the credit card over the cash. You know, right now I go to BP and Shell. I punch in my phone number. I get five cent discount because I'm a regular loyal customer. At what point did you realize that your revenue was dropping, and what what do you attribute that to? Do, do you know exactly what was going on, or did you just start okay. making less money? <laughs> I tell you, in 2013, it was $3 a mile to a customer, and Uber used to take 10% commission, okay? Average driver was getting $2.50 to $2.60 a mile. It was everybody was happy. Drivers were happy. Drivers were making enough money. They could feed their families and live a good life, good earning. Today, the mileage rate is $1.15 a mile. Mm-hmm. It means I lost from $2.50 to $1.15. I lost about 60% of my income. Answer of Uber is I can do more jobs. In New York City, the traffic is run by 10 miles an hour. How many miles I can drive with the 10 miles an hour? I cannot drive 1,000 miles. I cannot handle 1,000 customers. I can handle 10 to 12, 15 customers a day, mm-hmm. okay? Most 15 customers pays me $20 to each customer. I made three, $400. If those 20 customers pay $10 a day a customer, I made only $200. That's what it is happening. That's why my income has been reduced because Uber keeps on dropping the price, and all the prices are dropped on the driver's head, not through the company's pocket. Mm-hmm. And Second thing, Uber has increased their commission from 10% to 40% and inc- decreased our income by 60%. Do they even try to justify that to you? No. Okay. There, there is no justification. Mm-hmm. They, we go to their office. Those people have no answer. The only thing they say, leave it or take it. 
and you will have more jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like telling me if I work at a minimum wage eight hours, but they're going to give me less than a minimum wage, but I should work 14 hours to make more money. TLC law says we should not work more than 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if you go to LaGuardia Airport, uh, Uber lot, and Kennedy Airport, Uber lot, in the nighttime, you will see hundreds of drivers sleeping in their cars because they cannot meet meet their ends. How many hours do you work now uh, in a typical week? I work about 30 hours with Uber, mm-hmm. and I work about another 30 to 40 hours with my boss, 60 to 70 hours. And okay. you're saying that you, you need to rely on that other job because you can't just rely on Uber. If I rely on Uber, I will literally starve myself to death. That's how much money I make yeah. in Uber. IPO thing is only to make Uber rich. And if Uber or New York State Senate or Capitol House, anybody wants, I am willing to prove anywhere and any time that Uber is right now is an exploitation. It is, Uber is doing the same thing what factories were doing to the labor in 1900. If you see in 1900s when we had the factory revolution, that is the time all the leaders woke up and they made the labor laws. This way the factories cannot exploit the factory workers. Mm-hmm. Right now, Uber has 3 million people. They are exploiting 3 million people, but there is no lawful help for these 3 million people. There are nine drivers committed suicide last year, and there are Every day on the 1010 Wins News and all other places, all the taxi magazines have this ad in it, drivers do not commit suicide, you take a help. Those ads were nowhere before. Until Uber came, those ads were nowhere. None of the yellow cab drivers or a black car driver ever committed suicide because of financial burden. Since Uber is there, nine people did in New York. I have no idea how many hundreds of people did all over the country. And right now, I can say thousands of people are on verge of committing suicide because of Uber. A lot of the suicides from last year, they were um, yellow cab drivers, um, I think. There's one or two black car drivers, rest were yellow cab drivers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what, what do you think about that? Because I think some people get the impression that, you know, the yellow cab drivers are the ones that are really suffering and the Uber drivers are just sort of coming in and, you know, taking the rides from them. But what, what, would, what do you think about this idea that it's like taxi versus Uber? Okay, everybody is suffering. The yellow cab people are willing to speak about it. The Uber drivers are not willing to speak about it. You see in Uber, every day, hundreds of drivers come and hundreds of drivers have to leave because those people who cannot make money, they left Uber quietly. They came in quietly, they left quietly, they did not speak. These yellow cab drivers, they took a million dollar loan to be in a business and that's why they are shouting, they are making noise. But in Uber, thousands of people came in, they joined, they lost ten, twenty thousand dollars they left Uber, but they did not spoke a word, but they lost the money. Are you getting fewer rides now as well? First of all, I'm getting fewer rides. Second, the price of every ride is like 30% or 40% what those rides were three years ago. Uber uh, always argues, and, and all of the rideshare apps always argue that um, the their drivers are not their employees, right? They, they're not responsible for um, their drivers the way they would be responsible for ordinary workers because the drivers are uh, supposedly self-employed, um, you know, and, and the, the argument has been made for taxi drivers as well. Um, what, what do you think about that argument? When I was driving for a black car company, 
they tell me like tonight before I go home, they will tell me we have 10 jobs available tomorrow. One is 8 a.m., second is 10 a.m., third is 12 afternoon, then 2, and 6 o'clock we'll give you going home, you go home, okay? Would you like to take this package, okay? That was, that was the time I was independent driver because I had to say yes or no to each and every job, okay? Today I have to Uber, hold the Uber phone in front of my face. Even if I go to bathroom when I'm working, I take the Uber phone in front of my face that Uber going to give me a job. I am on call. I am not, I do not have a job in advance. When somebody give me a job in advance, yes, I'm an independent contractor. Mm-hmm. When you tell me to stand on the street corner and I'm going to send you the job, what will you tell me? I'm sitting there for three hours. There is zero job. Those three hours, it costed me my life three hours, mm-hmm. but I made zero dollar in those three mm-hmm. hours. Yeah, and so basically uh, Uber completely controls not only you know yep. whether you work, but when you work and uh, where you'll go. Yep. And this idea that you're not an employee, you're just an independent contractor, obviously that has a lot of legal implications. The city has tried to some degree to rein in Uber, put some regulations, put some rules on it. What more do you want the city to do in terms of how TLC should try to tackle this issue? First of all, TLC should tackle this issue. Whatever is the yellow cap price, it should be the same with the Uber. Uh, Uber drivers should get same amount of money what a yellow cab driver is getting the money. If the yellow cab driver gets the same price for the gas, I get the same price for the gas. Yellow cab driver gets paid $2.60 a mile. I get paid $1.15 a mile. Tell me, how is this to be justified? Okay, I am getting literally less than 50% of a yellow cab driver, but I am also controlled by TLC. First of all, TLC should control this thing that Uber, Lyft, anybody, they have to pay the same amount of the money what yellow cab driver is making. Then what happens? It's an equal share business. The person takes a yellow cab, he pays the same amount of money. He takes the Uber, he pays the same amount of the money. Mm-hmm. Plus, the yellow cab fare is organized by TLC. It has been studied that if they pay, make that much money, a driver will make enough money that every five years they can change the car. Because in five years, the car is a dead car. Because we put 60,000 miles a year. In five years, the car is gone. With Uber income, a lot of drivers are going out of business because they worked for three years, four years. Now, car is junk. They do not have enough money to go buy a new car. Aren't people leasing their car kind of through Uber, too? Uber has a system where they refer people. For if, I, if I lease the car from Uber, it's $360 a car mm-hmm. a week. I drive Chevy Suburban, $60,000 Suburban. My payment is $855 a month. Okay, they give me a Toyota Camry for $360 a week. That means seven and seven, fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars a month. That car is only twenty-four thousand dollars, and they wanted me to pay fifteen hundred dollars a month to them. I drive a sixty-thousand dollar car for nine hundred dollars. How much of the problem do you think is just the fact that uh, Uber has um, failed to cap the overall number of vehicles? Is that in and of itself an issue just because the streets end up getting flooded with a lot of cars? We are thankful to the Mayor de Blasio who signed that law last year in August. I was in Union Square when he signed, uh, when he declared it. I was standing over there with him and we are proud of him that he did it. And uh, that did help a lot to the drivers. Otherwise, Uber was adding a couple thousand cars every month. 
and that was depleting the business. It's just like an uh, like an apple pie. It can be shared only with X amount of people, mm -hmm. where everybody enjoys it. New York City population has not increased by three times, but New York City taxis had increased by five to six times. When Uber came, there was only 30,000 black cars. Now, there's over 160,000 black cars. Those 160,000 black cars, 90% of those cars are in city. And city population has not multiplied that many times mm -hmm. that they can support these many taxis. And that's why the share of profit and share of a pie is getting smaller and smaller for each driver. You were saying that the Uber drivers have uh, maybe been less uh, vocal about organizing than the taxi cab drivers. This yep. is the first um, strike of this type with just the rideshare app. And this is happening nationally, I believe, too. Um, yeah. It's international, basically. Yeah. We are asking all over the world people to do support us and be part of us. Yeah. Yep. What are your major demands now? Would you like Uber to recognize you as what, employees? Do you want to raise? Uh, do you want a union? Or First thing, we want union. And second thing, we want uh, to give them a fair wage to us. It used to be good. It used to be fair in 2013. Slowly, slowly, it has been decreased. We want them to increase the price to the customer. This way, the drivers can make more money. Now, what Uber is doing they can charge you $100, but they're going to pay us only $1.15 a mile. I've seen in my jobs, they took up to 40% of commission because they want to pay me lower wage. They gave me X amount of dollars, but they charge the customer more money. That's why they kept the more money. They have not done a penny worth work extra, but they increased their commission from 10% to 40%, and I get my income decrease more than 60 to 70 percent. That is not fair. That's where we are asking TLC that any job Uber gives us, they should take only 15, 20 percent commission. They should give us rest of the money. If some customer is paying extra money for something, we should be part of it too. We should not be taken out of that part. And Uber takes the butter and gives us the buttermilk, you know. Yeah. What do you want consumers to do? Should Do you think people should boycott Uber? Do you feel like people should somehow put pressure on uber what can ordinary riders do ordinary riders can support us they should not uh, like for one day for tomorrow mm -hmm. if they everybody can buy card uber and use yellow cabs we will really appreciate if they buy card uber left all the app companies and use the regular black car companies use the yellow cab tomorrow for one day this way Uber and Lyft, all these companies knows that drivers are getting support of people too. That will be something very, very helpful. And in Los Angeles, Nicole Moore, a Lyft driver, was striking alongside her other rideshare colleagues and explained what's going on over on the West Coast. What um, is it like over there where you are? It's awesome because um, as the day continues, more and more and more people are participating in the pickets uh, for a 24-hour strike. It's a powerful, powerful day to see the voices of regular rideshare drivers like us in the press, in the media, all over the country. And it's sort of shaping the conversation around Uber as they're about to IPO. And it's because the brave people that are my coworkers as drivers have decided to prioritize sticking together and not working today over um, any uh, surges or, you know, special little incentives they could make today by working, which is what the companies are doing to try to break this, the strike. Thousands of people are striking today. There are certainly people uh, working as well. Maybe they didn't find out about it. 
but we're growing rapidly. I know we've had at least 200 new drivers sign up to be part of Rideshare Drivers United today. And we know um, that this has had a huge impact on the company, and it will continue to have a huge impact on the company um, because we're going to continue to disrupt and be active and fight together until these companies change, until our elected leaders force um, regulation on these companies and enforce and, 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 and hold the companies accountable to the rules that exist. Right now, they are skirting every single labor standard uh, that we hold dear in the United States, things like minimum wage, things like if you're injured on the job, guess what? We'll cover you for that. Disability insurance if you can't work for a while. Drivers end up with lots and lots of um, injuries um, doing this work. Sciatica is a really normal injury from driving, as folks do, just to make a living 60 hours a week. Um, and, you know, it takes you it takes you out of the driver's seat for a while. Well, uh, folks don't have insurance and folks don't have any kind of compensation while, while they're trying to heal themselves. And that's not what would happen if we were real employees. The law of California says that uh, workers like us are employees, but the companies aren't following those laws. So we are fighting right now uh, for, um, you know, our city of L.A., um, to actually regulate these industries and, um, you know, and the state needs to uh, do so as well. When you say, um, you know, regulate these companies, is your ultimate goal to be uh, recognized as employees of these companies or is your more immediate concern about wages and, and compensation hours, things like that? So we've laid out our priorities in our Driver's Bill of Rights, which is voted on and prioritized over and over again by our 4,300 members. I don't think that drivers really care whether they're employees or independent contractors. What they care about is that they're um, being paid something that will keep a roof over their head and, and food on the table. Yeah. And right now, you know, I mean, when we, when we came into this industry, I know I was promised 80% um, of the fare. Within uh, several months, I was noticing that I was getting a lot less than 80% of the fare because they had changed the terms and conditions that we had no control over. So we want fair wages. Mm -hmm. We want transparency. We want community standards. We want the right to organize. And, and those are the things that we want. If employee status gives us that, we will um, stand behind that as a way to get these things. And we certainly support the efforts of elected leaders who are doing those kinds of efforts. What I will say is that, you know, I mean, right now, the Supreme Court of California handed down a decision on uh, the Dynamics Company that basically applies to rideshare uh, drivers and says that we are employees in the state. That was handed down last year, right? Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, what's happening? Oh, you know, we see we see hair salons turning their um, independent contractors into employees and making those steps. We see a lot of industries um, trying to comply with the law. Do we see Lyft and Uber complying with the law? Do we see the state of California um, trying to force um, these companies to comply with the law? No. But we do see many, many brave senators and assembly people trying to pass a law to legislate uh, that decision in um, a law called AB5 that would give workers like um, us the rights that employees have to a minimum hourly wage. Um, right now, most of us, uh, we do the math in different ways, but there's no way that even the most robust evenings of driving for Lyft or Uber result in a $15 an hour minimum wage, which is the minimum wage in our city. You know, I mean, I went out for 10 hours um, the last time I drove and got 
$110, so that's $11 an hour. And doesn't count the money I put in in gas, and you know gas is going up. It doesn't count the money I put in to clean my car so it smelled nice and looked clean for the passengers, and it doesn't count, count any of the wear and tear in my car. And I imagine that a lot of these issues are also issues that taxi drivers, ordinary, are, mm-hmm. they, are they yellow in L.A.? I'm not sure. Ordinary cab drivers well, um, would face. Yeah. And so do you organize in tandem with them? Um, what, what is the relationship? Taxi Workers Alliance is awesome, and they're just amazing. Uh, what I'll say about taxi drivers here is um, taxi drivers lost their union a few years ago. There's 2,800 taxi cabs on the streets of L.A., uh, you know, that are authorized by the uh, city of L.A. to, to, to drive. And um, there's more than 60 companies that own, own those taxis. And it's a, very, it's a very difficult industry. And they're also hurting. And Lyft and Uber has hurt taxi drivers. So um, are, are there efforts, um, I guess, to... to uh reach out to taxi drivers or a lot of us have relationships with taxi drivers because mm-hmm. we sit in the same areas to pick up your ride and um yeah i think the taxi drivers are are feeling uh, similarly you know um like it's getting worse right but um at this at this time you know they lost their union a few years ago i know that there's probably efforts inside of taxis to um figure out how to make it better for them yeah and um you know i've i've expressed my interest in working with them at all costs but there hasn't been there hasn't been so much of a an effort here as as there could be so they're leaning very heavily on industry and established labor to try to make sweetheart deals without having drivers in the room. And, you know, us and Right Here Drivers United, I mean, we're pretty much across the board know that if drivers' voices aren't in the room, it's not a real agreement. Mm-hmm. I think people can put Band-Aids on a lot of things, um, and it's not going to solve the, the real problems that drivers are dealing with, and, and drivers need to be at that table. So, you know, I just don't think that that's a good model. I think um, workers, rideshare drivers, are, are ready to be the force that uh, works directly with these companies uh, to fight out the, the real things that we need. Of course we need, you know, organized labor. Um, many, many uh, folks in organized labor have been very helpful and supportive of our efforts, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's other unions that are maybe leaning towards a model that doesn't include drivers in, in the solutions, and I think that's a mistake. By and large, the labor movement has been very supportive and inspired by what drivers are doing here in L.A. and across the country, and, um, you know, I hope that uh, the way that will go is that these independent driver organizations will, will be supported to victory by the labor movement because I think we really are the future of labor. What What are the stakes for you in terms of your immediate um, work situation for drivers? Um, is there fear of retaliation because you are taking this action from a place in which you have a labor status that essentially um, is leaving you disempowered in some ways? So let's be clear about deactivation. Deactivation happens for no reason at all. You know, people are deactivated all the time. They're deactivated because their passenger will rate them a one star because they think it's a way to get a free ride out of it. You know, I mean, we're often deactivated by algorithms. And and I don't think there's anything more inhumane than that. And so then we call the company and say, why was I deactivated? Oh, um, a passenger complained. What passenger? You know, how can I improve? Mm-hmm. Oh, we can't tell you. It's a secret. Oh, so I'm losing five days' pay or sometimes permanently losing pay, and I don't even know why. So let's be clear about deactivation. These companies deactivate people for any or no reason at all, right? right? So in terms of our organizers, I think there is a lot of fear. There's fear that we'll be, you know, retaliated, you know, but we made the decision that uh, we could not remain uh, in the shadows, that we had to speak up and be public about it. And uh, we're trying to lead by example. Um, 
You know, I actually would invite uh, Lyft or Uber to try to fire um, one of our organizers, you know, and it just is, it, you know, because um, honestly, they'll be violating a lot of laws and it'll make them look really bad. Um, but, you know, at this time, we've been organizing very publicly since January and, um, you know, it hasn't resulted in any retaliation. And, and I think, you know, that's a good sign yeah. that um, that the drivers can raise their voices and be heard. I mean, we know that drivers can't have three accidents and then, uh, you know, <laughs> not expect some um, something to happen, right? More often than not, there is no reason that people are deactivated. And there certainly is no active follow-up on whether accusations from passengers are real or not. Besides fair wages, that's probably the number two issue is deactivation without cause and no just cause, you know, investigation either. I think it goes right into the issue of passenger safety, which we've heard so much about. And drivers know that passenger safety is an issue. We know that driver safety is an issue. And the issue is not drivers or passengers. The, the issue is society. And there's a lot of people who are bad actors in society. And then you put them in a car together and something bad happens, right? So the issue is how does the company take that issue, right? Do they take it seriously? Do, do they really investigate? I mean, often if, we'll, if we've had an unsafe uh, situation with a passenger, we'll report it to the company and say, we'll be, we'll be sure not to match you with that customer again. Really? That's how you solve safety issues, right? And we know that happens to passengers as well. Passengers report really bad stuff that's happening, and they don't know what happens to the drivers. You know, they have no idea. I have a good a good friend in the in the movement who, um, you know, has been sober for more than 30 years. She was accused of driving drunk one night. There's no way she was drunk, you know. She goes to meetings, you know, she's no right. way she's drunk. And it was probably a, a passenger who's just trying to get a free ride or whatever. Yeah. If there had been a, a real policy and procedure in place, right, she would have um, been able to maybe go into, say, an Uber hub, take a breathalyzer test, show that she wasn't drinking, and um, get back on her way. As it was, she was deactivated. She lost her income for a week. Then she was brought back on. Nobody ever established whether she was drunk or not. Nobody ever reported any uh, illegal activity to the police. You know, there was no real policy or procedure in place. And so we identify with the passengers who have these experiences, and we believe that it's, it's on the company to have real policies and procedures in place. This is part of the way that these uh, companies, not only do they, you know, laugh at labor standards, they laugh at any passenger or driver safety standard. And it, it is a problem. It is a community issue. That was Inder Parmar and Nicole Moore, rideshare app drivers who went on strike on Wednesday. I went down to the Uber headquarters in Long Island City, Queens, just a few blocks from where Amazon wanted to place its HQ2 for a rally midday on Wednesday, where the rideshare drivers and New York Taxi Workers Alliance President Baravi Desai spoke to reporters about why they were on strike. I spoke to several of the drivers there about why they came out. My name is Baljit Singh. I was driving with like a three and a half year with Uber, Lyft and uh, yeah. Juno also. And Juno also reacted my account also. There's no reason uh, because that day when I got the request, so same day uh, my son was sick. So I think he, he was like a, a small kid, yeah. uh, like three months or four months yeah. that day. So I take him like an emergency in a hospital, LIJ. 
But once I gave him the reason, my son was sick, and that's the reason I never picked up the procedure. And I was like a little panic. What should I do? So uh, suddenly they shut down my account. Uh, once I explained everything, they said we don't uh, like understand what you like. Once you pick up the uh, like a job, you have to pick up the procedure. You can't do like that. You never pick up the procedure. And that's the reason they shut down my account. And second reason, the Uber. They shut down my account. I have no idea what's the reason. They, they just shut down my airport cubes. If I went to the airport, airport, right? They don't show my airport cubes numbers. They shut down my like. I, even if I go in the city, I can pick up the like any airport jobs, and I can drop off the any airport and the city. So Does that happen often that they'll shut down certain so many trips? People. So, many people. Yeah. so many people. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I have a lot of friends. So they deactivate even the Juno account. Uh -huh. And when you go to the office, they don't have any answer. They don't have any answer. They only say it's a safety issue. I don't know what kind of safety issue. We are working you know, more than four years with them. You know, and working you know, to drive the yellow taxi almost 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. We know the very well to the city. You know. Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been involved with the driver organizing? I'm going with them almost another, it's like more than 20 years, 1996, yeah, 97. Wow. It's a long time. Yep. Yeah, very long time. How do you feel about sort of being here while Uber is putting itself up to make I know, because they are the billionaire because of the drivers. You know, they are yeah. the billionaire because they, they, they don't do anything. Because they just have the app and who, who work for them? Drivers. If no drivers, no Uber. Yeah, yeah. I saw today that um, if Uber was considered its drivers' employees, it would be the largest it's employee in New York City know, now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Andy. Andy. Rollins. And how long have you been driving uh, various About drivers? two years and a half now. Yeah. I started this in 2016. Uh -huh. The first ride ever. Yep. is uh, November 15, yeah. 2016. So but tell me what brought you down here today for the round. Oh, well, look, these drivers need help, truly speaking. Uh, it, it, there's no playing about it. I am grateful to God Almighty because uh, somehow with, with education and, and, and knowledge and stuff, I'm able to navigate. But then I put my, myself also in the shoe of these most of these people, these driver, fellow drivers, who have gone through difficulties and doesn't have the privileges that I have. You understand what I'm saying? And then I see most of them also have the same privilege, but they don't know. They Americans as well. But to, so what you notice is that the marginalization and the subjugation is so great across the board without any check and balances on the corporation. So they rob the drivers, they rob anybody they want, they subjugate them until the government actually comes out and say enough is enough. The reason why we're standing here today and New York City, you know who, because of him? The Blasio. The mayor of New York City gave it in. He doesn't, he wants the union, all of this, to be able to strive. This is why we are standing here. Otherwise, we wouldn't. We may protest in our offices. They won't allow it. The mayor knows. In his time, he put attention, he had the drivers. And so we can use that opportunity to push it as much as we can. 
So today we are supporting our brothers and sisters across, you know, across the United States and the globe. Yeah. Um, those of them who are in Los Angeles and uh, Pennsylvania um, and Washington D.C. and a whole lot of other states, you know, they are in. We are asking for better pay. That's number one. Solidarity for one, and, you know, togetherness. So thirdly, we are asking the TLC to regulate the commission these ride-sharing companies get. What would you say if you could go inside headquarters and talk to uh, people who are about to make a bunch of money on their stocks today? You uh, mean on Uber? Yeah. This is an American company. But we believed we love them also because they provide millions of jobs, hundreds of thousands of jobs by their actions. But we want a fair playing ground, pure. So if Uber is going $1 trillion, it's okay with me. What we are asking for is not to bring Uber down or cut them down so they don't survive. No. But we are asking for while you are going up, drag us along with you. Don't leave us behind when you are here. We want to be dragged along. That means pay us a fair share. You can be a trillionaire. It doesn't matter to us. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So this is my opinion. Since Lyft became 22 IPO, you know, do you know Lyft has improved so much in their app, in their, if you open Lyft app, you will never, for a whole week, you will never get one single passenger complaining. Yeah. Why? Because Lyft has, has been using feedbacks to restructure the app. So they are using the people's opinion and putting it right back into the business. And the, both the passengers and the drivers are seeing what they have been talking about right here as the action is going. So Lyft has less problems now than Uber has. Uber has a huge problem. Yeah. What kind of problems does Uber have? Uber has the pro- one of the problems Uber have. Let me yeah. tell you. Yeah. If Uber, they're not paying me for this advice. Yeah. <laughs> they're not paying me for yeah. this advice. If Uber wants to succeed with the public, yeah. Uber has to balance the relationship between riders and passengers. Yeah. Let the riders understand how important your drivers are to you. Mm-hmm. And let the drivers also understand how important your riders are to you. It's an equal partnership yeah. and a good relationship. So the drivers, once the rider comes, you can have a rider call you on the phone and say, where are you? Who, uh, come down here now. Yeah. Just like you have a slave. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Where are you? I see on the app, you're going the wrong way. In the middle of midtown. Yeah. How can you tell the driver that he's going the wrong way when actually there is a whole lot of traffic? So, How did you get involved with the well, organizing when, with the taxi workers? When I, when I became a driver, I knew what union help is and the power of union. So I wanted, I was searching for a union that truly represent the drivers. Yeah. And I found this. And I went there myself. And my friend also went with me. Yeah. And I registered and I became a member. And I've been a member since then, till now. 
and I have no reason. They are the only people truly, truly, truly by the interest of the drivers. I, did, I came here earlier when IDG was here. I, I saw it. It, it was a distraction. They came to talk about wellness and all this garbage. The drivers, who told them the drivers don't exercise? Do you understand what I'm saying? When a global organization of drivers around the world are protesting, you are here trying to distract them by putting up wellness and health. Drivers' wellness. So you can see that they, 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 are, they put their hand where their money is and who is paying. And so in order to distract us, they Uber got them say, look, you better go there and talk about wellness. About a year ago, you know, more than a year ago before I stopped driving for them. Yeah. I don't drive for Uber now. What happened was that 2017, I walked into the office of the union. Yeah. There was Wall Street journalists, and they had their cameras. And one of the lawyers, he was here, I just saw him a few minutes ago. He said, Henry, these journalists are here from Wall Street. They want to talk to a driver about Uber. I said, sure, why not? I'm well dressed. I said, okay, let's sit down and talk with them. So they prepared their cameras and everything. And I sat down for about 45 minutes. They questioned me from A to Z, whatever was their concern. And I answered it. And of course, I think it was published. Uh -huh. I think it was published on the paper. And so, Uber saw it. Because up to now, they haven't given me the reason for deactivating. They have not given me any reason for deactivating. So, I think Uber does this secret revenge. That was from the Uber Lyft strike rally in New York City. And then for the last part of our Uber strike coverage, I spoke with James Farr of the independent workers Great Britain, whom you heard from just a couple months ago on this podcast, about how their strike day went and how it connected up to the other organizing they've been doing with drivers across the UK. So let's start off with yesterday, we're talking on Thursday, yesterday's International Strike Day against uh, rideshare apps. So tell us how it went where you are. I thought it went really well. Drivers voted to stay off the app themselves from 7 to 4, 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. Yeah. But we asked the public to stay off the app as well. And uh, we had some really good response from that. We had the leader of the opposition party here, Jeremy Corbyn, put a, a note out on social media and the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer, John MacDonald, asking people to stay off the app and support us in solidarity. So I think that, you know, that, that also sends a very strong signal to Uber as well that yes. by treating workers badly, um, it's also damaging its brand and damaging the affinity of young people to use that type of service. Um, so in that respect, it, it went very well. Um, it is Ramadan over here, so it's uh, tough. A lot of our drivers are of um, Muslim faith, so they're fasting all day and, and not drinking water. But, uh, we had a good crowd out, but we had many more people who, who stayed off the app and, uh, and stayed home. Yeah, tell us a little bit, since uh, most of our listeners didn't get to see it, what kinds of uh, rallies and things you had there? We had uh, demonstrations in four cities in London at Uber's um, UK headquarters. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, also in uh, Birmingham, which is the second big city here in Britain, and uh, Nottingham, and uh, Glasgow in Scotland. There were great demos. There were outside Uber's head offices in London, outside the Green Light hubs in the other cities. It attracted other supporters as well. So we had a lot of couriers join, for example, up in Scotland, some foster care workers. And um, so we generated good support and solidarity from other groups. It's good to be outside Uber's headquarters in London because... Yeah. It's quite close to the financial district. It kind of sits between, we have two financial districts mm-hmm. in, in, in London, the one down in Canary Wharf, and then what we call the old city. And in between the two is where we were. That's where Uber's headquarters are. So it's a kind of um, significant part of London to be demonstrating in. Yeah. Uh, we were able to close that road for a while outside Uber's offices uh, when we had cars parked up. And we were there for about three hours, a lot of media, um, some smoke flares, uh, a lot of red banners. Uh, we had a banner that said um, uh, billions billions for bankers, poverty pay for drivers, uh, the big Uber sell-off. Uh, so it was, it was a good demonstration. But, you know, um, Sarah, um, I hate to define success yeah. by having to be on the streets. Right. Um, yeah. The most successful thing would have been if we had all been paid properly by this company and we could go out and go about our business like any other day. Um, they uh, Time Off War, Time Off App from all these people everywhere, not just in the all over the world. That was that was time out of the pockets of the drivers themselves. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody is is able to afford to pay strike pay. And so time off the app is, is you know, time is money, uh, literally. Uh, so it's an, an incredible contribution that drivers have made to take time out, out of um, their earning time to, to come and demonstrate. And also, I think there's a big aspect of fear. This is, this is the thing significant for us. A lot of our demos outside Uber's offices before have been on foot. Mm-hmm. This time it was in cars, just parking the cars up and blocking the road. Yeah. But I think there's some concern among some drivers, you know, that, well, the license plate is revealed now, mm-hmm. uh, and would there be recriminations? But we know there would not be, and we have uh, trade union protection laws in, in this country to mm-hmm. protect, it's called trade union interference. But still in all, I think um, drivers feel intimidated by companies powerful as Uber. So tell me how this fit into the ongoing actions that you've been doing, the organizing with the cab drivers around the congestion fees. Private hire drivers uh, in London are facing a congestion charge now uh, for all but completely all electric vehicles, which mm-hmm. are not generally available on the market. There's only one or two models available on the market. Even if there were, we don't have the charging infrastructure in London to support mm-hmm. this type of technology. So effectively, drivers are facing a, a £11.50 a day charge uh, from the City of London. Um, we've taken an action. The taxi drivers who... Uh, have have not been asked to pay this to just the private hire drivers mm-hmm. and so we've taken an action against the mayor of london and transport for london which we heard in the high court uh, this summer on grounds of discrimination because uh, transport for london's own impact analysis showed that uh, the taxi drivers who are remain exempt are 85 percent white british Mm-hmm. 18% live in uh, the most deprived communities in London, whereas our drivers are 94% BME and 71% live in the most deprived uh, communities in London. The House of Commons uh, Select Committee Chairman for Work and Pensions, Frank Field, wrote a report two years ago called um, Sweated Labour, Uber mm-hmm. and the Gig Economy, 
And uh, he identified that um, private hire drivers in London were working in sweatshop conditions. So, so we felt it was cruel and unfair that Transport for London would pile misery on top of misery. They haven't done anything to protect workers in the way that Bill de Blasio has in New York, um, but they've come and added to the misery. So yeah. for those reasons, we were taking uh, Transport to, uh, for London to, to, uh, to court um, this summer. Yeah, we invited the Mayor of London down to the demonstration uh, yeah. yesterday, Sadiq Khan, and um, it was a three-hour demo from one to four, and at 18 minutes before the demo was scheduled to end, we got an email from the Mayor saying that he was sorry he couldn't make it. <laughs> so I'm not sure he, he tried awfully hard to be there, but um, if we win, an outcome of that could be that HMRC will make them, that's our, you're our IRS, I guess, will make them pay value-added tax on everything, which would be 20% on everything they've ever sold since 2012. And so when you look at HMRC, which is your IRS, Mm -hmm. that is, uh, they are responsible for both minimum wage enforcement and uh, taxation uh, collection. Well, you can see that they've sat back since 2012 and um, allowed us as precarious workers both to suffer but to try and get the law enforced while they've done nothing. And here we have Uber going to market, telling public investors all over the world that paying minimum wage and paying their tax is a material risk to their business. Some investment, eh, Sarah? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So last thing I wanted to ask you about was the the data question, the the suit against Uber for driver access to their data. So tell us about that and how that's going. So personal data can, obviously, your name and address, but it can include all sorts of other things as well. Um, so all sorts of profiling information, GPS data, for example, is personal data. So you, you're entitled to pretty much get everything back um, from Uber, from any platform company. And so we started um, asking for the data in 2016, and it's been, it's been iterative ever since. Um, but we started Worker Info Exchange, uh, got some support, I'm working with a lawyer that um, took on Cambridge Analytica and won. So we've got some good good guns behind us. And we've been asking Uber for our data. We've got a lot of data uh, and a lot of useful data. So, for example, for the test group of drivers that we've claimed data for so far, we've got all their GPS data, um, all their earnings data, all their trip information, all the pick-up points, drop-off points, um, time on platform, how that was allocated, earnings, um, dispatch per hour, uh, what happened to those dispatches, how many timed out, and so on. And this is really important for um, a couple of big reasons. Firstly, um, drivers need to know, was their time wasted or how much of their time was wasted relative to other people? So how much time did you spend waiting for a job? How much time did you spend en route to a job? How much time did you spend doing a job and how has that changed as your rating changes and so on and secondly it's important uh, to understand how management decision has been made how people are being profiled so we found evidence and we're challenging uber on this that uber is profiling drivers and is adding tags uh, like missed dta's attitude inappropriate behavior attaching those types of tags to to driver uh, profiles Mm-hmm. So that's um, that's evidence of active management control, and that's what uh, triggers statutory protection under the law. Uh, so it's very important that drivers get their hands on their data, and then 
we as a community, as a collective people, we can aggregate that data and we can use it as uh, an organising tool within the union so that, you know, we can we can build a picture of how drivers have been treated. And this has all been inspired by what's been achieved in New York, where Uber has to hand over their data uh, to the uh, Taxi and Limousine Commission. Right. Uh, there is no such rule for, for Uber here. So it's important for workers to try and get the data and, and aggregate it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking to drivers here in New York yesterday, and they're telling me, you know, I got shut off of this platform, I got shut off of that platform, and they won't tell me why, I have no idea what's going on, and they just, you know, they just unilaterally decide to dump you off the platform. Well, what we're seeing with um, uh, both Viavan um, and uh, Uber is an increasing amount of drivers that are coming to us saying that they've been um, thrown off the app for a spurious reason of fraudulent use of the app are being accused of fraud. And this is quite serious because it ends up with the regulator. Anybody who's deactivated here is reported to the regulator automatically. And when the regulator sees fraud, they say, oh, what's going on here? But it turns out it's not fraud, it's not financial fraud, it's not criminal fraud. It is what they call misuse of the app, which would be multi-apping, not accepting the work or accept this job and then I'll cancel it because I've got another job close by, which you're perfectly entitled to do as an independent worker. Mm. But these companies are calling it fraud um, because what they don't want to say is that we're firing you because you didn't accept the work because that would trigger worker rights protections. But dress it up as fraud. And that's very, it's very difficult. It's very, um, you know, how would you feel um, yourself? And it's an injury to dignity. How would you feel yourself if you've been a You've lost your job. You've been accused of fraud. You've never committed fraud in your life. Um, it's not fair to use those words. We can use the data to expose this type of thing. That was James Farr from IWGB, and that was all of our Uber strike coverage. We will put links up for you at the Descent website. And as always, if you are an Uber or Lyft or other rideshare driver, we want to hear from you. You can contact us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. So I just want to say that Michelle stole my ARG right out from under me. So another plug for the excellent Sarah Jones and her piece on why we should stop talking about work being the thing that gives people dignity. As the Uber drivers and teachers demonstrated this week, it's often refusing to work that can be the thing that brings workers dignity. And that brings me to another piece that made me go ARG this week from friend of the show Dahlia Gabriel, herself a researcher of the app driver economy, over at The Guardian. Her piece is titled, As the Left Wakes Up to Climate Injustice, We Must Not Fall into Green Colonialism. And it's about everybody's favorite subject these days, the Green New Deal. Gabrielle makes the important point that climate struggles are not new and that it is the people of the global south already feeling the impact of climate change in heat waves, floods, hurricanes, and droughts who have been leading the fight for years. Meanwhile, in the global north, and particularly in the U.S. and in the U.K., where she's writing, we have been asleep at the wheel. That is starting to change, she notes, quote, from labor calling for a national climate emergency to prominent Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez declaring capitalism irredeemable, we are slowly unzipping ourselves from the straitjacket of incrementalist politics. She continues, quote, 
While our political leadership has continually acted as if rising global inequality and conflict is merely bad management of an otherwise rational system, communities in the global south and indigenous populations have been giving their blood, sweat, and tears to resist an economic system that puts profit above people and planet. Whether it's Ken Sarawiwa, who was murdered in his struggle to break the political bond between Shell and the Nigerian government, or the 1977 Egyptian bread riots in which hundreds were killed resisting the IMF-mandated neoliberalization of the economy. The connection between capitalism as a system and its injustices is something the global majority is well-versed in. It's important to note that the development of the global north, as she points out, was always sustained not just by the working class in the U.S. and England, but by workers around the world who labored under the lash of colonialism. She writes, quote, This means understanding that any Green New Deal or Green Industrial Revolution cannot be bound within our nation's borders or prioritize the well-being of Westerners over black and brown lives in the rest of the world. As we make these moves toward climate emergency... It is important that progressives do not internalize the colonial principles that got us in this mess, either by simply ignoring the global historical context of resistance to emergency issues, or even actively arguing we should underdevelop Bombay to deliver growth in Wigan. Indeed, the Industrial Revolution was financed and sustained by the blood money and infrastructure of slavery and colonialism. A green version of this is no better. End quote. The Green Industrial Revolution or Green New Deal must learn from the mistakes of the first Industrial Revolution and the first New Deal. It must center people, not profits, and solidarity, not exploitation. It cannot leave anybody out to cater to the prejudices of a small group. It must, as she writes, be internationalist to the core. My pick for ARG is called Joe Biden Should Retire the Phrase Dignity of Work by Sarah Jones in New York Magazine. Well, since just about every prominent Democrat in Washington seems to be jumping onto the primary race bandwagon, it was perhaps inevitable that Joe Biden would throw his hat into the ring. And predictably, he's framing himself as the avuncular, stable, normal, good-natured, everyday, ordinary, average Joe-type guy, notwithstanding his creepiness toward women. While Joe attempts to rebrand himself as Mr. Average on the campaign trail, Sarah Jones picks up on one all-too-familiar refrain that Biden trotted out in a recent speech aimed at working-class voters, that idea of the dignity of work. He said, quote, We can do all that we need to do to make this country grow and restore the dignity of work. And he added pointedly, And we don't have to raise any new taxes. Well, that's a relief. But is all work dignified, or is the kind of work that counts as dignified in Biden's mind reserved for the archetypes of working-class America, proud men in hard hats, overalls, plowing away on the daily grind? What about work for the rest of us, the way that most people work today, which is very different from maybe the way people worked 50, 100 years ago? Jones reflects on how both left and right have invoked the dignity of work to embody the so-called Protestant work ethic concept, self-reliance, self-discipline, and ultimately transcendence through the redemptive power of labor. Work itself can be emancipatory. But Jones takes issue with the idea that work somehow contains an inherent dignity. Quote, conservatives and liberals alike refer often to the dignity of work. For both groups, the phrase can function alternatively as a justification for cutting welfare in the name of personal responsibility or as a stand-in for workers' rights. 
So if you go by the numbers, workers should be feeling extra dignified these days. Unemployment is at record lows. Growth seems robust. Trump promises to bring jobs home from overseas. But on a personal level, what happens when work itself feels increasingly undignified? Is that our fault? Despite high growth and productivity, working Americans seem to be losing out in many ways and falling further behind. Stagnant wages, rising inequality, chronically precarious jobs. The day-to-day hardship, even with work, makes people wonder what they're working so hard for if all that effort never seems to pay off. Jones points out, America's persistent economic inequities also put Biden in a difficult position. Key moments in his long record of public service undermined his professed commitment to the American worker and raised questions about how exactly he defines the dignity of work, whether he believes dignity rests in work itself or whether it flows instead from the human beings who perform that work. Biden's main credential in his work was under the Obama administration, and despite its relatively progressive orientation, that administration also perpetuated, even exacerbated, many of the economic injustices that are now front and center in the election battleground. During the Obama presidency, Jones points out, the economy had added jobs at the top and bottom of the wage scale, but not the middle. Moreover, the home foreclosure crisis remains a stain on Obama's inequality record, and that reputation has followed Biden on the campaign trail. He was also champion to many of the policies that ended up coddling predatory banks while failing to protect millions of Americans from financial ruin, massive job loss, and spiraling debt. And while Biden seems very comfortable glad-handing burly blue-collar folks in his campaign stops in Scranton and the like, his politics have been less rosy for the other side of the working class, the communities of color that are economically and socially disempowered by the draconian social policies that Biden perpetuated. Those policies, Jones points out, helped put millions of mostly brown and black Americans in a trap from which there are few means of escape, unquote. So all this brings us back to the word dignity. Let's set the issue of jobs aside. What does it mean to live a dignified life? Dignity is not simply earned in the workplace, though work is often part of it. It's not a commodity, but dignity is also about feeling enfranchised in one's day-to-day existence, empowered, and feeling recognized as a human being, worthy of respect. Often our jobs cannot give us this experience. Often our jobs actually strip us of our dignity. So when Biden talks about the dignity of work, Jones concludes, quote, Biden's own record reveals his catchphrase to be not just a cliche, but a cliche that links human dignity to a rigid definition of human productivity. As campaign rhetoric, it invokes arguments for welfare reform, which frame government assistance like it's a toxin that sickens everyone who encounters it. For policy to meaningfully improve the lives of Americans suffering under the nation's inequalities, it must reframe dignity as a human quality with no relationship to a person's work or to their lack of it. There is no dignity to labor that human beings themselves do not bestow on it. Labor does not define us, though we often identify ourselves through our jobs, for better or worse. Labor does not define our lives, though we help define labor through our lives. When we cannot live in a way that makes our work worth doing, then what good is a livelihood for a life not worth living? When Biden offers us the dream of the dignity of work, we might want to question his commitment to the idea of dignity when he talks about work. Perhaps when his audiences cheer for the so-called dignity of work, maybe what they're really hoping for deep down, and what we should all be aspiring to as citizens, is building a society that works for the dignity of all.
And that does it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks again to Natasha for making us sound good. And if you're in the New York area, please check out an exhibit that I recently worked on at the Museum of the City of New York. It's in Upper Manhattan. It is called City of Workers, City of Struggle. And it's all about the labor movement in New York City. And if you have something to say to us, you can always catch us at the hashtag belabored on Twitter. We want to hear from you if you are one of the Uber strikers this past week. If you are listening to us while driving an Uber or a Lyft car, your knuckles gripping the steering wheel in rage, we want to hear from you too. And if you've got any other news, strike alerts, or other updates from the working world, please let us know. Get us on email at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.